0: call the Foreign Relations Committee to order, and I want to thank our witnesses for being here uh, and those senators that are here at the moment. I know others will be joining. Um, This hearing is the first public meeting the committee has held since we began to oversee the implementation of the Iran deal. And I would like to underscore the importance that we place on the oversight effort. Uh, In many ways, I think that was the strongest element of the Iran Review Act. We we intend to hold another hearing in January after the administration submits the 180 day report as required by the Iran Review Act. And then a third, if implementation day occurs. I'm sure there'll be more to follow after that and we will work with the ranking member and others uh, to make sure that those are scheduled uh, in a timely fashion. As we begin this process, it's worth noting that whether, whether or not any of us supported or opposed this agreement, The deal is being implemented at present. And I think no matter what anyone's view on the agreement is or was, we all support the goal of preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. One area that we all agree on is the need to be tough on any destabilizing or illegal action by Iran. With that view, I think the agreement is off to a really terrible start. I know we've talked about this some in some classified settings, and today we'll talk about it more publicly. Since the agreement was signed, Iran has convicted an American Washington Post reporter, launched cyber attacks against the State Department, defied a UN travel ban, and sent Soleimani to Russia, exported weapons to Syria and Yemen, and then violated the UN ballistic missile test ban twice and lied to the IAEA in the PMD investigation. And I realize not all of those issues are covered by the the Iran agreement. But they all relate to our relationship to Iran. And it's very evident uh, that uh, they are taking a very different tack, I think, than many administration officials thought would be the case after the agreement was agreed to. Can anyone here point to any substantive consequences that Iran has faced? I'm sure that uh, during this hearing that's going to be a constant theme because uh, we see no evidence of them paying a price for any of these actions. Instead of consequences, Iran got what they wanted and our administration supported a resolution at the IAEA closing the PMD investigation, which I think all of us uh, believe we thought they would maybe get a D minus in their actions, uh, was an F. I thought that our witnesses, uh, I know that our witness will say that most of these actions fall outside of their jurisdiction, including the missile test, but I don't think we can take a narrow view of this oversight. Failure to impose any consequences on Iran for violations of the U.N. Security Council resolutions and other destabilizing actions sets a very dangerous precedent, which we've talked about, before implementation of the nuclear agreement when sanctions are lifted and the leverage shifts to Iran. So we hope you're going to talk with us today about how you plan to enforce the agreement when it appears we are paralyzed at present to act for fear of Iran backing away from the agreement. Most of us have talked about the leverage shift that will take place and feel like it's going to be even more difficult uh, for it to be put, for them to be pushed back against. So we thank you again for being here. I look forward to the comments of our distinguished ranking member and certainly your testimony and questions.
1: Well, thank you, Mr. Mr. Chairman. First, let me just pause for one moment on behalf of the Democratic members of this committee, but I think I speak on behalf of all the members of this committee congratulate you on an incredible year as chairman of this committee. The way that you have conducted your leadership on the Senate Foreign (coughs) Relations Committee is in the best tradition of the United States Senate, allowing us uh, to have, I think, important input into very important foreign policy security issues for the United States. So I just really want to thank you and congratulate you. I, I do want to remind you, though, that the members of this committee receive a set compensation. It's not based upon the number of committee hearings that we have. Uh, I think this committee had a set, an all-time record uh, on the, the number of hearings and briefings, yeah. which I think was because of the issues. Uh, it, it, we started um, uh, Senator Menendez's leadership on the uh, Iran Review Agreement with, with your leadership and Senator Kane's leadership and others. Uh, and uh, took on a very important responsibility of trying to deal with Iran's nuclear ambitions. But we also had to deal with Russia's activities that were not helpful in Ukraine uh, to Syria. Uh, We've dealt with uh, a State Department authorization bill. We've dealt with uh, individual bills and resolutions in a way that I think was in the best tradition of the United States Senate and this committee. So I applaud you. I also want to point out, as I I said many times, uh, your timely considerations of nominations, and we've had so many in actions in this committee, uh, was, in again, of the best tradition of this, uh, of this of the Senate in a nonpartisan manner. Thank you. And we thank you That's very good. much for that. And I could tell that the members of this committee, I know Senator Menendez will agree, the working relationship among the staffs, the majority and minority, couldn't be better yeah, and the best tradition. So I just really thank want you. you to know that. that. This is, our, fortunately, our last hearing, I hope. Uh. <laughs> I do, too, actually. Thank so. you. So, on to the day's hearing. Uh, uh, our responsibility is on oversighting the Iran agreement. It, it goes well beyond the, the actions we took in regards to uh, after the agreement was agreed to. Uh, we have an oversight function, and today's hearing is the first on the oversight functions of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as you indicate, we will uh, be um, having a, a, s- a series of opportunities uh, during the course of next year as it relates to the, uh, this agreement. We all, all share, Ambassador Mole, the common objective to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. Together, we want to work uh, to make sure that uh, Iran does not attain uh, nuclear weapon capacity. So we, we want to see how we can work Uh, From uh, in that regard. Uh, The PMD, possible military dimensions, it was certainly disappointing, but I don't think anybody here was surprised. What it pointed out is that Iran cheats and they want to develop a nuclear weapon through covert activities. That's not a surprise, but I think it verifies the point that as we go forward, we need to make sure there's zero tolerance from any deviation for Iran's obligations under the JCPOA. So I think that's the lessons that's learned. I I also want to point out that we have to be able, and the Review Act points to this, uh, consider the other activities that Iran's going to participate outside of the four corners of the JCPOA, their support for terrorism, uh, their human rights violations, Uh, their ballistic missile ambitions and tests. And let me first mention uh, uh, Jason Rezin and his unlawful detention. Over 500 days, he's been held in captivity. Uh, We need to make sure we don't lose sight of that gross violation of that individual's rights and Iran's other activities that violate the human rights, not only of its citizens, but citizens of other countries. Yesterday in the Helsinki Commission we held a hearing in regards to Azerbaijan and pointed out that the incarceration of journalists is, is a way that you try to prevent a country from dealing with the rights of its citizens. And I, I think this is in a particular case that I hope you will always keep in mind that this person is unlawfully detained, he's an American citizen, and we have to use every tool available to bring him home safely. Uh, the ballistic missile tests that the chairman referred to. Not one, but two now confirmed on October 10th and on November 21st in clear violation of the United Nations Security Resolution 1929. Do we expect the Security Council to take action? They should, but we understand Russia, we understand China, we understand their politics, but we also know about U.S. leadership and what the United States must do for zero tolerance of violations and it's not only, I hope, the US, U.S. actions, but we have a coalition of the willing, we hope, with Europe. And it'll be watching very closely what the United States does in, in the response to these violations, as well as our influence on our European allies to make it clear to Iran that we won't tolerate any violations of their international obligations. I look forward to this hearing, and I look forward to working with you and all the members of this committee in a common objective to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state.
0: Ranking Member Cardin, I just, uh, uh, just in light of what you said earlier, I, I want to thank you and your staff uh, for the way that uh, you have made sure that we had a, a totally bipartisan efforts throughout the year. I want to thank Senator Menendez for the tone that he set uh, before that and thank all the committee members uh, for putting our national security interest and our foreign policy first and causing the other issues of disagreement to really uh, go by the wayside. So uh, this has been an outstanding year. I do want to apologize to the PRMs. Uh, we were talking about this morning in our office, both of us have staffs to cover a wide range of issues. Uh, you cover all the issues and I do think we've about hit the wall this year as far as uh the kind of things that uh, people have and the bandwidth that people have. So uh, I, th- I want to thank everybody. We did have numbers of issues that need to be addressed, and I think the committee uh, together has addressed those in a good way, but thank you. And I do hope we'll get uh, some additional nominees confirmed before the end of this week uh, somehow. Uh, with that, um, our first witness is the Honorable Stephen D. Mall, Lead Coordinator for the Iran Nuclear Implementation at the U.S. Department of State. The second witness today is the Honorable Thomas M. Countryman, Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. Finally, the third witness will be uh, Lieutenant General Frank Klotz, retired U.S. Air Force and current Undersecretary for Nuclear Se- Security at the NNSA Administrator and at, at the U.S. Department of Energy. We want to thank you all for being here. I think you'll understand. We'd like for you to summarize, if you would, in about five minutes. Without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. Uh, and with that, if you would just go in order in the order that I just introduced you, I would appreciate it. Again, we welcome you here. We thank you for changing some travel plans to be with us today. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and all the members of this committee. It's uh, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to provide an update on how we're doing on implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA. My name is Ambassador Steve Mull. I have served as a career member of the Foreign Service for almost 34 years. And shortly after the JCPOA was concluded in July, Secretary Kerry asked me to return to Washington from my last post as ambassador to Poland to serve as the lead coordinator for implementing the deal. In this job, I'm leading a terrific team of colleagues in the State Department, as well as at the Departments of Energy, Treasury, Commerce, and other parts of our government to make sure that the JCPOA is fully implemented to enhance not only the security of our country, but also of our friends and allies around the world. I'm really pleased that two of my colleagues, Department of Energy Undersecretary for Nuclear Security and Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration, General Frank Klotz, and Assistant Secretary Tom Countryman, uh, Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation, are here with me today. And I'm especially honored uh, to meet with this committee, which has been such a valuable partner in shaping our Iran policy over many decades with bipartisan support uh, for our common strategic objective, as you mentioned, Senator Corker, of preventing a nuclear-armed Iran. As as you mentioned, uh, our government has numerous and serious concerns about uh, Iran's policy in the region, which are unrelated to the nuclear deal. We continue to raise concerns about detained Americans that you mentioned, about Iran's support for terrorism, its hostility to Israel, or its human rights abuses, which are rampant, but my job is solely focused on the critical task of making sure the JCPOA achieves its one crucial objective, preventing Iran from developing a nuclear weapons capability. When fully implemented, the JCPOA will dramatically scale back Iran's nuclear program and provide unprecedented monitoring and verification tools to ensure that it is exclusively peaceful as it moves forward. We are making steady progress towards this objective. October 18th marked Adoption Day, under the JCPOA when the deal formally came into effect. On this day, all the participants began making the necessary arrangements for the implementation of their JCPOA commitments. That included Iran's informing the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, that it would provisionally apply the additional protocol and fully implement Modified Code 3.1 which provides for early declaration of nuclear facilities and granting unprecedented access to Iran's entire nuclear program from cradle to grave. These are two important mechanisms which will ensure the international community has much greater insight into Iran's nuclear program than it's ever had before. The P5 plus one and Iran have also issued an official document outlining the plan for redesigning the Iraq heavy water research reactor so that it will no longer be able to produce weapons-grade plutonium. And the United States and the European Union have taken actions to lift nuclear-related sanctions upon reaching, and only upon reaching, Implementation Day when all of these commitments will be met. Implementation Day is the next major milestone in the JCPOA, and it will occur only after the IAEA verifies that Iran has completed all of the nuclear steps that we specified in the agreement. These are the technical steps that will quadruple Iran's breakout time to at least a year from the current estimate of less than 90 days. At that time, Iran will receive relief from the US, the EU, and UN nuclear-related sanctions. The timing for reaching implementation day is primarily within Iran's control. However, I reiterate that Iran will receive no sanctions relief under the JCPOA until it has verifiably met all of its nuclear commitments. Since adoption day, Iran has been making tangible progress to reach those commitments. For example, Iran has begun dismantling its uranium enrichment infrastructure by removing so far more than 5000 centrifuges and transferring them for storage under continuous IAEA surveillance. Uh, It has begun to move quickly now to remove the remaining 8000 in the coming days. Iran is also reducing its stockpile of various forms of enriched uranium to no more than 300 kilograms of up to 3.67 percent enriched material. It will accomplish this primarily by shipping a significant amount of such material outside of Iran while diluting the remaining excess to the level of natural uranium or below. Commercial contracts are in place for Iran to ship its enriched uranium stockpiles to Russia. We expect that this material, about 25,000 pounds of enriched, up to 20 percent low enriched uranium, will leave Iran in the coming weeks. This step alone will significantly lengthen Iran's breakout time. As I've briefed uh, the committee before, Iran must also remove and render inoperable the existing calandria, or core, of the Arak reactor by filling it with concrete before implementation day can occur. These actions will effectively cut off Iran's ability to produce weapons-grade plutonium. Iran and the P5 Plus One are also continuing work to advance the redesign and reconstruction of the reactor so that it can no longer produce that weapons-grade plutonium. The P5 Plus One have set up a working group to facilitate this project, which will begin to meet soon after the new year. Regarding the possible military dimension of Iran's past nuclear program, an issue on which all of us have been very focused, On October 15th, the IAEA announced that Iran had fulfilled its commitment under the so-called Roadmap for Clarification of Past and Present Outstanding Issues, as agreed to with the IAEA. Subsequently, on December 2nd, the IAEA Director General released the final assessment on past and present outstanding issues regarding Iran's nuclear program. The report confirmed and corroborated what we and the international community have long known, that Iran had a structured nuclear weapons program up until 2003, but there are no indications that that program is continuing today. This candidate assessment gives us further confidence that the IAEA will perform its duties related to the JCPOA vigorously and honestly. And just this week, on December 15th, the IAEA Board of Governors in a special session adopted a consensus resolution addressing that report. This resolution, submitted by the P5 plus one, turns the board's focus from confirming what we already knew about Iran's past activity towards fully implementing the JCPOA. This resolution gives the IAEA much better tools for deterring and detecting weapons-related activities going into the future. We also continue to work closely with the IAEA as it makes preparations to implement the JCPOA's unprecedented monitoring and verification provisions of Iran's entire nuclear program. The IAEA will have continuous monitoring of all of Iran's key declared nuclear facilities. This includes uranium mills, as well as centrifuge production facilities, a first for the IAEA. These measures specific to the JCPOA will give us increased confidence Iran is not diverting material or equipment to a covert program. We've always said that this deal isn't based on trust, but rather on intense verification of Iran's program. That's why we're working so closely with the IAEA to make sure it has everything it needs to do this crucial job. Meanwhile, we continue to engage with our international partners and other matters pertaining to implementation of the JCPOA and reaching implementation day. U.S. experts continue to meet with our P5 plus one partners and others, including the EU and Iran, on setting up the procurement channel That's the mechanism by which we will, together with the U.N. Security Council, review and approve or disapprove transfers of nuclear supplier group controlled items and technology to Iran's nuclear and non-nuclear civilian industry, as well as other items that we think are inconsistent with the program. And on sanctions, we continue to work within the U.S. government, as well as with the EU and others, to make the necessary arrangements to lift the nuclear-related sanctions once the IAEA confirms Iran has completed its commitments and we reach implementation day. Full implementation of this deal is in our interest, in our partners' interests as well. It will place Iran's nuclear program under an unprecedented verification and monitoring regime, and when fully implemented, it will give us and the international community the tools necessary to ensure that Iran's nuclear program is exclusively peaceful. It will make us, Israel, our Gulf partners, and the whole world safer. The continuing, I'm at your disposal 24-7 every day of the week uh, as we go forward in this deal. Uh, Senators, I look forward to this being the first of many engagements with you. We really value your partnership and guidance as we go forward towards our common objective. I look forward to taking your
0: questions. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for that uh, fulsome testimony. If we could do it a little less fulsome um, for the remaining witnesses, that would be great. But thank you so much for that, Mr. Countryman.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Senator Cardin and other members for this opportunity. You have my written statement, so I will be less fulsome. Uh, For decades, my bureau, ISN, and its predecessors have had as a central assignment taking every opportunity to analyze, impede, and frustrate the development by Iran of technology related to nuclear energy uh, and to ballistic missiles and other technologies. We did that job before there were any negotiations with Iran on its nuclear program. We did it throughout the negotiations. And we do it today with the same tenacity and creativity and partnership with dozens of. Uh, dedicated agencies across the federal government, and we'll keep doing it. Since the negotiation of the JCPOA, uh, we have devoted our key resources in support of Ambassador Moll's mission to achieve full implementation of the JCPOA, and in particular, we work hard on support and cooperation with the International Atomic Energy Agency as well as in creation of a procurement channel that can meet the limited legitimate nuclear needs that Iran may have under the JCPOA. It in no way diminishes, as I said, the task of counterproliferation, of interdiction, of preventing acquisition of technology. I look forward to addressing any concerns or questions you have about these two central roles of my bureau or any other topic. Thank you again for this opportunity.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. General Klotz.
3: Uh, Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member
4: Cardin, and members of the committee. It's a great honor to again testify before this committee and to have the opportunity to discuss the role that the Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration play, and will continue to play, uh, in support of the U.S. government's actions to implement the JCPOA. Uh, As my colleagues from the State Department, uh, Ambassador Mull and Assistant Secretary Countryman have already stated, uh, the JCPOA ensures that Iran's nuclear program is exclusively peaceful. It provides unprecedented verification measures. It constrains Iran's nuclear program in a manner that gives us ample time to respond if Iran chooses to violate its terms, and it takes none of our options off the table. As we move toward and then beyond implementation day, The scientific, engineering, and technical expertise within the Department of Energy, including our national laboratories, will be called upon to help ensure that Iran complies with all of the nuclear-related measures of the JCPOA. The Department of State is leading the administration's efforts to oversee implementation of the JCPOA. But DOE plays, and as I said, will continue to play, an indispensable role in this process by providing scientific engineering and technical support and analysis to inform policymakers in making sound decisions and judgments. Allow me to provide just a couple of brief examples of the kinds of unique expertise and skills the Department of Energy brings to the table. As Secretary of Energy Muniz has testified, the JCPOA blocks all of Iran's pathways to building a nuclear weapon, including the production of weapons-grade plutonium. To this end, uh, as Ambassador has pointed out, it requires Iran to redesign and rebuild the Iraq reactor, effectively eliminating a potential source of weapons-grade plutonium. The JCPOA further requires that the final redesign of the reactor be approved by the Joint Commission. For the United States, the expertise for assessing the technical aspects of the redesign, including fuel and safety standards, and ensuring it complies with the non-proliferation provisions of the JCPOA resides within the Department of Energy and in its national laboratories. Another example, the JCPOA also establishes a process for review and approval of procurement by Iran of specified nuclear-related items. This process will be conducted, as Ambassador Moll said, through a procurement working group uh, of the Joint Commission. The NNSA's Office of Nonproliferation and Arms Control has a unique expertise and a long history in working with domestic agencies and with international organizations, such as the Nuclear Suppliers Group, uh, on matters related to the export of nuclear-related and dual-use technology and materials. They will play an important role in advising the Department of State, which will coordinate the U.S. government's efforts regarding the Procurement Working Group. Finally, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, will play a major role in monitoring and verifying the nuclear-related measures of the JCPOA. The Department of Energy and the NSA work very, very closely with the IAEA in supporting its nuclear safeguards mission, including providing training, developing technologies, and providing experts to the organization. By the way, we have just published. Uh, this brochure, which lays out uh, our support of that, and if the committee likes, I'd be happy to Thank submit you. it for the record. It's also available on our uh, website. Uh, in conclusion, uh, the JCPOA is not built on trust. It is built on hard-nosed requirements that will limit Iran's activities and ensure access, transparency, and verification. The Department of Energy takes seriously its participation in efforts to implement the JCPOA and to help ensure that Iran carries out its commitments under the deal including participating in the administration's implementation efforts and supporting the IAEA. Again, thank you, uh, Chairman, for the opportunity to be here and I look forward to fielding any questions you may have.
0: Well, thank you for your testimony. Without objection, uh, we will enter into the record, uh, the document that you just referred to. Um, Ambassador Mull, we, first of all, uh, you've got a winning personality and we all like you and you know, you've been very energetic in your meetings with us. At the same time, uh, the we have not verified. The U.S. government has not verified this second missile launch, to my knowledge. Is that is that correct,
2: uh, sir? We're aware of the reports of that launch. Uh, we are analyzing those reports,
0: but so we haven't we haven't formally stated that it occurred. We, the U.S. government has not. Yeah, y- you came before us, and I, I just want to make sure that as we go forward, we're all. Uh, really clear with each other, but you came to our committee on December the second. The launch took place on the twenty-first. No mention was made of that in this classified briefing. I'm just curious as to why had, why that did not occur,
2: uh, Senator. I had not seen any of those reports at our last meeting on uh, December the second,
0: so I was not in a position. So you were to unaware of it happening on I, December the second. On 2nd? December second, I had not seen any reports. Did you have sense of, uh, that something had occurred? Had I? Did, you, you had no knowledge of it whatsoever. I, I,
2: uh, I had heard that uh, uh, someone said that there might have been a launch. Uh, it was an unconfirmed source. I had, uh, had not yeah. seen any reports of that, though. If, if
0: you it. would just, you know, again, so we can maintain uh, an appropriate relationship, even things like that would be useful, especially in the kind of setting we had, which was very casual. Um, uh, we'd like to know those kind of things in, in real time. Um, let me, Iran is rep- is obviously conducting work on long-range ballistic missiles. Um, I know this is again a little bit outside of the purview. The, the only use for those in history up until this point in time is to put a nuclear tip on those. Is that correct? I think General Klotz would agree that intercontinental ballistic missiles, up until this point in time, have only been used to deliver nuclear weapons. Is that correct?
4: Uh, long range, uh, uh,
0: uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm, and I mean long range. Yes. Yeah,
4: i I'm, I'm drawing on, on my experience as a Air Force Missile Officer. Uh, Long range, intercontinental ballistic missiles, to my knowledge, have only been used for uh, delivering nuclear, or being capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Shorter range systems have been used by a variety of countries to use uh, 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 conventional munitions.
0: Ambassador Amal, as we understand that this is the case, that that's the only purpose, we know that they are doing that now. Is there anything, what is the administration drawing from that activity?
2: Well, I think the administration, as Ambassador Power mentioned uh, in her meeting uh, with this committee last week, uh, the United States has strongly condemned uh, the violation of U.N. Security Council Resolution, which legally forbids that missile program from going forward. And in fact, the United States was the leader in mobilizing U.N. Security Council Resolution 1929 to make that illegal. But I'm really talking about
0: the intent. So what what, do you mean? Since history has said... We're a pretty sophisticated country ourselves. You only develop those for the delivery of nuclear weapons. Um, They are continuing to do that now in violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions. We've taken no action. That's a side issue that's very, very important, and I'm sure many committee members will focus on that. But what does the administration draw from the fact that they are testing missiles that throughout history have only been used to deliver nuclear weapons while uh, quote, um, dismantling the the antique centrifuges that they're uh, dismantling now.
2: Uh, Senator, well, one of the the reasons that we've pursued the JCPOA is that Iran has, in fact, as you mentioned, repeatedly violated Security Council resolutions on that missile program. Uh, So, Iran is going to develop that program regardless of the consequences. It's paid for that. Uh, An important part to remove that threat, if Iran's going to continue to develop that program, Let's make sure it doesn't have the capability uh, to put a nuclear payload in such missiles. And by reducing the amount of enriched nuclear material available to Iranians nuclear program by 98 percent, Iran now has today, within 90 days, it could amass enough material uh, to produce a nuclear weapon. Following implementation of this deal, it will take us more than a year. So the missiles may continue to fly, but we've made it a lot harder to put a nuclear payload on those missiles. I understand
0: all that. Do you, uh, do you, can you share with me why any thoughts that the administration has over this 180 degree inconsistency, where they're continuing to develop the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon, um, that's the only purpose in history that these long-range ballistic missiles have been used? What, 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 what is the thinking inside Iran from your perspective?
2: Well, the thinking, I mean, first of all, the, the missile launch that took place, the most recent one, was a medium range uh, right. nuclear missile. It was not uh, uh, an ICBM. Uh, the thinking that we apply to this is that we need to make it as
0: hard as possible. Uh, I'm not asking about your thinking, and if you don't, please don't read those paragraphs anymore to me. I'm asking you what the administration thinks Iran is doing when this is totally inconsistent with rational thinking.
2: Well, I'm not in a position to characterize what Iran or the Iranian government is
0: thinking. Uh, We're focused on making sure they can't develop a nuclear weapons capability. Let me ask you another question. There was a Senator Menendez really pressed Secretary Kerry when he was here, and many of us since that time, relative to whether the launch of these ballistic missiles as defined... Uh, will be in violation of the new agreement that's being implemented now. It was in violation of, of 1929. We've done nothing about that, which is unfortunate. But there's some really cute language that was utilized that we discussed uh, while we were trying to understand what the agreement really said. Secretary was, Kerry was adamant that they could not continue to test missiles even after this agreement was put in place. There's, there's some weird language in the UNSCR that this refers to, it says they're called upon. Out of curiosity, after the implementation, if they launch these types of missiles, is it or is it not in violation of the agreement? It is not in violation of the JCPOA. It is a violation of Security Council resolutions. So the called upon language from your perspective makes it clear that it, going forward it will continue to be a violation. The calls upon language, it would violate uh,
2: that part of the UN Security Council resolution, but that Security Council resolution contains legal prohibitions on any international support for Iran's nuclear weapons program. Any exception to provide uh, materials or or other resources to Iran's missile program is forbidden by UN Security Council Resolution 2231. Exceptions can be sought. The United States will veto any such
0: uh, exceptions that are requested. Thank you. I'm going to reserve the remainder of my time for interjections, Senator Menendez. Uh,
5: thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your testimony. I, uh, I'd like to follow up a bit on what the chairman, uh, I think's line of questioning was from what I could see. And uh, but before I do so, I want to echo Senator Cardin's comments about uh, the chairman's uh, process of uh, leading the committee. I do appreciate probably the most bipartisan committee in the United States Senate and it speaks incredibly important to what U.S. foreign policy needs to be, which it needs to be as bipartisan as it can. So I appreciate it. If I could, I was ranking when you were chair and
0: uh, uh, you have no idea how much I appreciate uh, the way that you dealt with me and your staff, the respect. uh, And just know that when someone like you as chair sets that kind of example, uh, it really causes those who come behind you to want to do the same. So thank you. Thank you. I hope to do so again.
5: Uh, <laughs> I, I hope not, but we'll see. <laughs> well, I did, there had to be a point of divergence. But in any event, uh, uh, I have a very clear sense, and I, and I hope I'm wrong, that what we have here is a permissive environment. We have a, a set of circumstances where, regardless of what you saw of the PMD issue, we, for the longest period of time, pushed to get a real sense of what was the breadth and scope as to how far Iran got uh, in development of its efforts for a nuclear weapon. And And for the longest period of time, the government of the United States said that we needed to know that. And then what we got really was a process in the JCPOA that gave Iran the easy out by just simply answering questions as they wanted it without really fully coming clean. And the result was that that's closed. Now uh, the administration consistently came before this committee and said that if we move aside from the nuclear portfolio that we would aggressively pursue Iran's violations of international order, missile technology, weapons trafficking, uh, human rights, and uh, its uh, hegemonic interests in the region. And so, what we have we seen since we have seen not one, but two missile tests, uh, and. Uh, We have seen uh, an interdiction of armed shipments uh, off of Oman. Uh, And I don't think we can expect the Security Council to do anything about it because of Russia and China. So the question is, is the administration ready to act and find its own set of actions Uh, so that Iran understands the consequences for violating the international order and setting the tone so that when the full implementation of the JCPOA takes place, that we will have a very clear understanding by them that failure to comply fully will have consequences.
2: Uh, Senator, um, I would stress that uh, uh, we fully concur with uh, you and the rest of this committee that uh, Iran has uh, violated uh, uh, these Security Council resolutions uh, in its missile program and does commit many other things that are very hostile to our interests. So, what are we going to do about it? That's the question. Well, there have been. Iran is one of the uh, most sanctioned countries on earth. Thanks to a really effective partnership that we've had with this committee over two presidential administrations in putting together a patchwork of sanctions regime that has exacted serious costs to the Iranian economy, we believe going forward, um, uh, you know, as these, uh, vi- as we confirm these missile launches, we've been swift in condemning them as we did, as Ambassador Power did in the Security Council, and measures that we will take uh, in response. Uh, to those confirmed missile launches, uh, we are actively considering uh, additional measures at this moment.
5: Well, uh, if you say to me, Ambassador, that they're the most sanctioned, it almost implies that there's nothing else we can do. If that's the case, then we're in deep trouble. But those sanctions are gonna be coming off assuming implementation. So the bottom line uh, is, and I see Ms. Haft uh, shaking her head no, but as far as I understand, those sanctions are going to be coming off upon implementation
2: uh, sir those uh nuclear related sanctions that's uh, what i'm talking about they're gonna be off will will come off uh, when iran has rid itself of 98 percent of its enriched uranium stoppile. so if those and sanctions
5: when- no longer exist and if you're saying they're the most sanctioned country in the world uh I assume that you're referring to that they're non-nuclear sanctions, so then what is left to do? Basically to let Iran violate without consequence.
2: Uh, S- Senator, I, I would underscore that uh, a very important part of the agreement that we negotiated with Iran uh, was the snapback provision uh, that allows the, the re-imposition of sanctions uh, for any violation of the agreement. And the United States is not bound by but, any...
5: But, these, uh, but these, Ambassador, these are non nuclear uh, actions. Let's put the nuclear portfolio aside. If Iran continues to violate non-nuclear actions that are in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, in violation of what Secretary Kerry said before the committee, that we will aggressively pursue Iran on violations that take place for missile technology, for human rights, for arms trafficking, then What's left? Well, we
2: will use the considerable full authorities that uh, we have to take action. And perhaps I could, I could ask my colleague, Assistant Secretary Countryman, who oversees those authorities uh, in pursuing our nonproliferation interests.
3: Specifically, with regard to ballistic missile technology, we rely on two related concepts one is sanctions, one is strategic trade controls. It is correct that we've sanctioned virtually every Iranian entity that is connected with the ballistic missile program so that they cannot do commerce with the U.S. or acquire U.S. technology legally or use the U.S. financial system. And we have also used such sanctions and designations against commercial entities in other countries that have traded with the Iranian ballistic missile program. Those sanctions remain in effect. We retain the authority to impose those sanctions even after the nuclear-related sanctions are lifted. And we retain, as the previous administration and I think the next administration, the determination to do so. Strategic trade controls are different. They allow us through the missile technology control regime, through the proliferation security initiative, in support of the UN Security Council resolutions to partner with dozens of nations around the world in order, as I said, to interrupt, delay, impede in every way possible the transfer of such technology. We have not and we cannot entirely stop that trade, but we believe that our efforts, which will continue after nuclear-related sanctions are lifted, have made the Iranian missile program less productive, less accurate, less of a threat to our friends in the region than it otherwise would have been. Well, let
5: me close by saying, Mr. Chairman, uh, number one, uh, I'm going to be looking forward to see what actions you take. And so far, they haven't been forthcoming. Number two. You talk about snapback, you have to snap back to something, and the Iran Sanctions Act that I authored and that my colleagues here all helped us with and passed unanimously through the Senate, expired this coming year. And I'm going to seek its reauthorization because you have to snap back to something. And number three, I have been following Iran since my days in the House of Representatives for the better part of 20 years. And I know some of my colleagues think that this is a question internally in Iran of showing that the hardliners have some, still some strength by firing missile technology uh, and testing it. I know that Iran, uh, over the last two decades, has tested the will of the international community. And that's why they got to the point that they were on the verge of having the nuclear power that could be converted to nuclear weapons. And basically we said, well, it's too big to to roll back. So at the end of the day, if we allow them to continue to test us, they have a history, they've tested us in the world. And if we allow them to continue to test us without consequence, believe me, that they will continue to expand. And that is the risk here. And that's what I hope we can come together on, uh, not only in an understanding, but in an action. Before
0: moving to Senator Isings, just to follow up, I'm getting the strong sense that the reason we're doing nothing creating a permissive environment, which I think is going to be very problematic over the long term. I I, I think we're doing that because we're trying to affect the internal elections that are taking place this spring. and That is just not in keeping with the integrity of this agreement. I can understand a desire by some to do that. I know that's why they're dismantling so quickly, so that the sanctions will be relieved before the election, but I get the sense that you and others are Complicit uh, in trying to affect their internal elections, and that's why we're not taking actions. When I say you and others, I'm talking about our UN ambassador and I'm talking about the administration. But with that, Senator Isaacson. Sorry, I just called you, Johnny. Excuse me. (laughs) Tell Diane hello. (laughs) You said hello, sweetie.
6: (laughs) Is it my turn, sir? Let me echo what Senator Cardin, <coughs> Senator Menendez said, and Senator Corker said about each of you. All have been great leaders for the committee. We appreciate very much what you've done. But I want to share something with the whole committee before I ask my question. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, the 43 surviving hostages from the American Embassy in Iran learned that this Congress had passed compensation for them, and the omnibus bill we'll take up later on this week. The emotional relief for those 43 surviving hostages of that ordeal is not expressible in terms of words, but I want the chairman, the ranking member, and every member Democrat and Republican alike to know that you did a great deal of work to help us over a seven-year period of time to make that a reality, and you've made the lives of some people who were tortured, beaten, and held captive by the Iranians at least get closure on an event that was a terrible part of their life. And I want to thank the chairman, the ranking member, and all the committee members
0: for making that possible. Well, I hope all 43 of them know it's because of your persistence and leadership that this is happening. And we all uh, sometimes get frustrated with the impact that uh, we're able to have with a 100-person body, but there's no question you've had incredible impact on these 43 citizens. Thank you.
6: Well, thank you. But it was a great team effort, and I appreciate it. And it really is the template for my comments to, to Mr. Mull. In 1981, when President Carter obtained the release of those Americans from the Iranian hostage-taking in the, in the embassy, to get them released by the Iranians, he had to negotiate away their ability to be compensated for their ordeal. That was the way the Iranians negotiated that deal. We finally got a hold of some sanctions money in the Paribas Settlement, which the Department of Justice had, which is the money we're compensating those hostages from, but the Iranians never want to accept responsibility or culpability for any crime they've perpetrated against the American people up to now. And I worry, as Senator Menendez has has said, that if we're very passive about the JCPOA enforcement and just look the other way, the Iranians will just look the other way and do whatever they want. By way of example, and I'm quoting here, the Iranian regime has declared, and I quote, they would consider any type of sanction at any level or under any pretext a breach of the deal that would release Iran from any obligations it has. So in other words, if we reach implementation day, and as I understand it, the president says the sanctions are then waived, and then we take any action to snap back, which is the enforcement mechanism we were all told by Secretary Kerry we would have. The Iranians will call the snap back a violation of the agreement; and they'll be free to do whatever they want to. So it's kind of like having it both ways. Now, am I missing something, Mr. Mo? Uh,
2: sir, uh, we believe that uh, in the uh, this is a this deal is a political commitment by all sides. Uh, the United States has been very firm both in the negotiations as well as publicly uh, in explaining the deal since then that any violation of that agreement will draw consequences. and We have a wide range of consequences uh, from complete, uh, uh, from reimposing some of the sanctions in, in partial, partially to reimposing all of them and, and, and walking away from, from the deal. So uh, we, a number of the, uh, the factors in this deal uh, are uh, close to irreversible. Uh, if Iran goes forward, as it says it will in the next few weeks, uh, to disable the reactor core of the heavy water reactor at Iraq, uh, that in one swift action will remove Iran's ability to produce uh, weapons-grade plutonium for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, that's a huge win for our interests and, and those of our friends uh, in, the, uh, in the region. Uh, if Iran decides to walk back, they, they will have... Uh, uh, for Iran, an unprecedented inspection regime. There are going to be uh, 130 to 150 IAE inspectors uh, given full-time, 24-7 access to all of Iran's nuclear facilities. Uh, And so we will be able to determine uh, if they are in compliance or not, and if they're not, there will be consequences. On that point, then
6: it would seem like to me what Senator Menendez has said he wants to do would probably be the appropriate thing for the Congress to do, and that is if in fact we reach implementation day, which I assume we will, and if in fact the sanctions regimen goes away when we reach that date, shouldn't we have in place before that date comes what sanctions we would snap back to if in fact there was a violation?
2: Uh, Sir, we have in place and will have in place uh, on implementation day and far beyond implementation day, a comprehensive network of sanctions authorities, both through the legislation uh, that uh, the Congress has passed, as well as a complex of executive orders, uh, which uh, has the ability uh, to impose sanctions on Iran swiftly, uh, should that be uh, required. So uh, we um, believe that we have the tools in order to do that.
6: General, can I ask you a question, please? We're, we're, the Iranians are gonna be sending 25,000 Pounds is that correct of nuclear enriched material to Russia as a part of the agreement?
4: Is that the total amount? <laughs> yes.
6: Okay, that, if my math's right, that's a number of tons of nuclear enriched material. Are we are we certain that the security of that material in Russia will be watched after, and will we have any ability to monitor the taking how they take care of that material?
4: Um, uh, Senator, we worked very very closely with uh, Russia over decades uh, to uh, enhance cooperatively their uh, security and safeguards of their nuclear sites. Also, uh, many of the sites in uh, Russia are subject to IAEA safeguards in the same way that uh, other sites are. Um, I think on this one, um, you know, the impression that we get is uh, this is a, a, a move that the Russians are taking very, very seriously, very, very professionally. They know how to move uh, nuclear material. They know how to store nuclear, nuclear material, and they know how to account for
6: nuclear material. The reason I ask the question is, and I think I'm correct here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a significant breach in the integrity of some of that material in Russia a number of years ago, which brought about the creation of the non-Lugar nuclear threat initiative and the inspections that took place in the old Soviet Union, which had let some of that stuff get loose and was never accounted for. So I think there's a we want to make sure we never revisit that chapter in history if they're getting that much nuclear-enriched material going into Russia now.
4: Uh, I couldn't agree more, Senator, and let me just add sort of uh, parenthetically that the Nunn-Lugar cooperative threat reduction uh, measures that were taken immediately after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union is probably w- one of the singular most important achievements in U.S. foreign and national security policy that I have personally had an opportunity to participate in. Uh, we were quite concerned uh, in those uh, early days uh, about uh, security and safety at uh, Nuclear uh, facilities in Russia, both civil and uh, nuclear, and it's because of the work of uh, Senators uh, Nunn and Luger and a whole bunch of uh, very patriotic Americans who've made countless trips there working with uh, Russian counterparts that uh, it is better than it was before. There's still work to be done, in my opinion, in the opinion of the NNSA and the DOE, and uh, we ought to. Uh, but to, under the current political circumstances, uh, it's been very, very difficult to get the Russians interested in pushing forward. Uh, but we'll continue to look for opportunities to do that.
6: Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you for your
7: service. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, I, I strongly supported this deal and continue to, and I strongly support tough enforcement of the deal. I was very glad to join with the Senator Corker and others in the letter to the president following the October missile test, and I'm gratified that the U.N. report about that test is so unequivocally clear that it was a violation of the Security Council resolution. Uh, the reason uh, of, among many that I supported the deal is I think the U.S. has to try diplomacy first. We have to. We've, we, we started a war in 2003 over a nuclear program that turned out not to exist, and we, we need to try diplomacy first we need to keep a military option on the table, but actually that option is strengthened legally, it's strengthened strategically, it's strengthened in terms of coalition partners, it's even strengthened in terms of the intel we get uh, if we go forward on this deal. Um, so we keep that option on the table, but we need to try diplomacy first. Um, I ac- and, and the good thing about trying diplomacy is, is that we're now in a hearing like this, where we're keeping the focus on Iranian behavior that's where the globe's focus should be, Iranian behavior. If we'd walked away from the deal, the focus would have been on American negotiating tactics. Why would America tank a deal that the international community – that would have been the focus. Now the focus is on Iranian behavior, and we've got to keep the focus on Iranian behavior and what the consequences should be. Um, I, I was gratified. I think the Senator Corker said we were kind of expecting the IAE report to be a little bit – kind of a fudge factor, but the IAE was was really clear. Iran had a nuclear program um, and, and we were gratified with the clarity because it kept the focus on Iranian behavior. I'm gratified by the UN panel conclusion that's been reported on in the last couple of days about the October test. Clearly this was a test and it was a test in violation of UN Security Council resolution. So, I expect we're going to be having a lot of these hearings and I just hope the focus is always primarily on what is Iranian behavior because that then lays a predicate for all kinds of actions that need to be laid globally. Um, I I do think to the Chair's question about what's going on in Iran, you know, we should all be humble about, you know, psychologizing any situation, but I think it's fair to say that just as we know we're not monolithic, we have divisions about things. I think a lot of what's going on in Iran is, is a non-monolithic dispute uh, within that political society about this deal and about broader issues of whether they want to be reintegrated into a global economy or continue to be an outlier. And when you see the way this deal has been treated by the Iranian legislature, and the degree to which hardliners hate it, threaten to kill those involved in negotiating with it, I think you see some of the challenges Uh, that are underway there. Um, So I think what we need to do is we need to have these hearings every time there's activity, we need to keep the spotlight on, and we do need to demand of the administration consequences, but precision in the consequences. I mean, to use an example of something that I think has been done pretty well by this committee and the administration, we had a pretty broad set of sanctions that we could have used vis-a-vis Venezuela the extent of the sanctions that were used were sort of a smaller subset of what could have been done. And the reason for that precision was of a concern, I believe, that if we went maximal in what we could have done, then that can have the effect of subverting internal political opposition. It gives the ruling authoritarians the ability to blame all their troubles on the United States, and then that crushes internal political opposition. But what we just saw in Venezuela was a stunning rebuke to an authoritarian government because people rose up and said, no, you're trying to blame this on the US, but it's not the US, you've mismanaged our country, and they demanded significant political change. So harsh spotlight on any violation, either of this deal or of any other uh, UN Security Council resolution is exactly what we ought to be doing, and we ought to be demanding, you know, when Senator Menendez asked the question, what are you doing, that we're thinking about doing stuff really isn't a good enough answer, and I recognize that we're still just a few days out from the UN definitively issuing the report about it. There's got to be consequences, but we have to be very precise in the consequences that we use because we don't want our actions to undermine legitimate political opposition, legitimate desires of the Iranian people for a different path than the regime has pursued in the past. Um, I, I I am interested in this question, and I wasn't able to ask Secretary I mean Ambassador of Power, this the other day. So the UN has now definitively concluded the panel that that analyzed this, that the activity in October was a violation of the UN Security Council resolution. We have reason to believe, okay, Russia and China will probably not go along with this in the Security Council. I hope, and Ambassador Mull, I guess this is a question for you. I hope our attitude on things like this isn't, well, Russia and China will probably veto it, so we probably shouldn't do anything. I hope anytime there's something like this we get our colleagues to put a resolution on the table and put it on the table in the light of day, backed up by a clear UN Security Council report and we ask the UN to take action and we make Russia and China before the whole world be an apologist for something that's clearly a violation of the UN Security Council. And I hope we do that every time and I hope we also think of other steps that we can take, but let's not, let's not give up any lever at our disposal to keep the spotlight on uh, Iranian misbehavior or violation of, of rules. So with respect to this UN Security Council situation about the October missile firing, we've got a great report out of the UN that definitively establishes that this was a violation. What, what is the strategy right now about how we pursue that in the Security Council? And let's make Russia and China use their veto power and use it publicly and then trash them for doing that. Walk us through the steps that you are thinking about right now.
2: Uh, Well, Senator, uh, I'm proud to say that uh, our colleague, Senator Power, in fact, has been uh, the leader on the Security Council in drawing the Security Council's attention to this issue, first when we confirmed it in October, and then this week when the report uh, came back from the panel of experts. Uh, She was very forthright, uh, urging the Security Council to take action and calling out those who would reject such action as being inconsistent with our common objectives uh, to keep this very serious threat to international security under control. I mentioned in terms of responses to that action, we are now actively considering uh, the appropriate consequences uh, to that launch in October. In terms of moving forward, uh, perhaps uh, Ambassador Countryman?
3: Um, I'll have to get you an answer on exactly how this Will play out in New York. Uh, we have not hesitated previously to ask for resolutions, even when they knew we knew they would be vetoed. If it was uh, valuable for making a point, as you've suggested, it is. Uh, there's obviously much broader dynamics at play in the U.N. Security Council, uh, and I I just can't speak for Ambassador Power on what the next steps are. But we'll get you an answer. Well,
7: can I just say then? Let Let me tell you what I hope you'll do, and I bet many people up here would feel the same as me. I think we ought to make the point every time we can. And if we're sure they're gonna veto it, we should still make the point. When it comes to Iranian behavior that is clearly in violation of UN Security Council resolution, we should never say, well, somebody else is gonna veto it, so why bother? We should make that point. Here's another question that is that I was confused about. Um, Senator Menendez was asking questions about the the ballistic missile, the UN Security Council resolution, versus the JCPOA and the ballistic missile. There is an article in the Guardian from the 15th of December and he, and the, about the expert's report about the ballistic missile test clearly violating UN Security Council resolution. And it says, under the July nuclear deal, most sanctions on Iran will be lifted when its provisions are implemented in exchange for curbs on the nuclear program. But the expert's report noted that, quote, ballistic missile launches would be covered under the 20 July resolution. So the the experts in concluding that there was a firing that it was in violation of the UN Security Council resolution um, are saying it is covered under the July 20 resolution. I guess that's not the same thing as saying it's covered under the JCPOA, but they are saying it is covered by the July 20 resolution which was uh, embracing the JCPOA. So, what what is the status of this vis a vis the JCPOA? And maybe I'm gonna ask that question for the record because I think we should we should all have a clear understanding of that. But yep. I hope I hope soon you will be able to come back, and I'll probably ask this for the record, too, and lay out what are the steps that we're going to pursue with respect to the clear violation of the UN Security Council resolution. Uh,
2: yeah, yes, sir, that's a, a, a very good question. I'm happy to uh, to answer it. Uh, the JCPOA, as I mentioned to uh, Chairman Corker, uh, does not uh, address uh, Iran's uh, ballistic missile program. UN Security Council Resolution 2231, the purpose of that was to endorse uh, and give the Security Council blessing. To the JCPOA, as well as address some other elements uh, about Iran's policy, including continuing the embargo on conventional weapon sales to uh, Iran from the world community for the next five years, and uh, preventing trade and otherwise support from the international community uh, for the Iranian ballistic missile program for eight years. So, 2231 was about uh, JCPOA, but also about these other issues as well.
7: All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: I I would say that. Regardless of whether the UN Security Council takes action or not, which we all know they're not, still have, just like we've done with North Korea recently, the ability to, the administration today can implement unilaterally sanctions in a surgical way, as you're describing. Um, So hopefully that's going to happen after the UN Security Council, unfortunately, does not take action. Senator Gardner.
8: Thank you Mr. Chairman and to echo the comments made by the members I too want to thank you for your leadership of the committee and to Senator Cardin for his leadership on this committee. He's also served as the ranking member of the East Asia subcommittee so he's pulled double duty and done an outstanding job in both. So uh, thanks to both of you for uh, your bipartisanship and your leadership. Uh, I wanted just to ask a brief question. General Klotz, remind me what the JCPOA states about the 25,000 pounds of uh, enriched material. Uh, What type of inspections? Will there be IAEA inspections of that material in Russia, anytime, anywhere inspections, uh, as the word or phrase was used by the United States. Uh,
4: thank you, Senator. Uh, what uh, Iran is required to do uh, is to, uh, under the JCPOA, is to reduce its stocks of uh, enriched uranium. Uh, uh, down to three hundred kilograms of less of uranium that has been enriched to right,
8: but if they do that, and once it's in Russia, assuming they do that, the twenty-five thousand pounds, will there be inspections of that? I be, uh, remind me the JCPOA terms.
4: Well, under there will still be uh, uh, IAEA uh, uh, inspections under its safeguards regime uh, and the Additional Protocol in uh, in Iran.
8: But in Russia, with the twenty-five thousand pounds, uh, you to verify that. that. Uh,
2: Senator, I'd be happy to take that question. Uh, We're, in fact, in the midst, uh, it's a very active period uh, for us right now, of negotiating uh, the removal of that material. It's still in Iran. Uh, As I mentioned in my testimony, I believe uh, its departure from Iran is uh, imminent. However, we're working very closely with Russia and the IAEA uh, to make sure that that material will be removed and stored uh, wherever it ends up. And what's the inspection requirement once it's stored in Russia? Uh, sir, we are in the process of discussing that very so we issue. So
8: we don't have a, a plan in place to inspect the 25,000 pounds of enriched material we, in Russia?
2: We would certainly not be comfortable in releasing that amount of uh, nuclear material anywhere without appropriate safeguards. So we do have uh, we a are, plan? We are, we are pursuing with the IAEA. Can you share the plan with the committee? And, and Russia. Uh, well, we're, we're in the midst of, of negotiating. I'll be happy to brief you.
8: So um, you don't have a plan in
2: place right now? We, we are negotiating the terms of how that material will yes be. Yes or no. Here. Do
8: we have a plan in place to inspect the 25,000 pounds of enriched material once it's in
2: Russia? Well, today we don't because we're developing so the answer what that is, plan will No, we will don't be. have a plan. Thank you. We're,
8: we have heard testimony from the, the panelists that we are actively considering sanctions against Iran when it comes to ballistic missiles. We are strongly condemned. We've strongly condemned Uh, Iran for the ballistic missile launches we've swiftly condemned Iran for the ballistic missile launch and we have raised concerns about Iran's ballistic missile Launch in your response to chairman Corker uh, you stated in response to the ballistic missile test One of the reasons we pursued this JCPOA is that Iran has repeatedly violated security resolutions on that program and then you stated Iran is going to develop that program regardless of consequences you stated that Iran will violate the ballistic missile provisions, resolutions, regardless of consequences. Knowing that, what plan for sanctions do we have in place upon verification that they violated it? Uh,
2: uh, uh, Violating the missile uh, provisions? Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Senator, uh, we have uh, substantial sanctions in place. Uh, practically every entity involved in Iran's missile program has come under But in relation to the, the under two launches, what are we doing?
8: If, if you knew all along that Iran is going to develop that program regardless of consequences, do you believe it's appropriate that they have access to billions of dollars that they will have access to once the implementation arrives and the sanctions are lifted, freeing their economy? Uh, of the sanctions that prevented those billions of dollars from going there.
2: Just uh, c- correcting the record, I said that uh, in fact Iran has continued to develop its ballistic missile program. Well, I'm reading from the unofficial,
8: program. unofficial record. This is again, it's the unofficial playback. But you stated Iran is going to develop that program regardless R- of consequences. Iran
2: has uh, d- developed that uh, regardless of the consequences that have been uh, imposed. Uh, we are considering active uh, measures, uh, active consequences for this latest uh, launch, and we'll share those. Uh, with the committee, of course, as soon as we make that decision.
8: Mr. Countryman, in your testimony, you said, we continue to use unilateral authorities to impose sanctions on entities connect- connected to Iran's ballistic missile programs and procurement network. Uh, what unilateral authorities to impose sanctions has the United States used after the last two ballistic missile tests, the last two
3: months? Uh, The authorities we have include the Iran-North korea Syria Non-Proliferation Act. It includes Executive Orders 13382 and Executive Order – I'm sorry, there's another one I don't have at my fingertips – under which, as I said, virtually every Iranian entity connected to the missile program has been sanctioned. We are actively considering what steps to take in response to the October 10th test. I have to say, I don't understand the argument about a permissive environment. The Obama administration is doing exactly the same thing that the Bush administration did, which is to respond to every violation of ballistic missile resolutions, of human rights, of terrorism, of hostage taking, with the legal authorities Congress has given us in an aggressive manner to designate, sanction, and reach out to hurt those taking that action and at the same time pursuing an active diplomatic policy in the United Nations and in other bodies. That's what we do, we do it aggressively, it's what we've been doing for 15 years. And I haven't heard an idea for doing something different with per, that perhaps goes beyond the legal authorities we have and the diplomatic capabilities. We well,
8: have. perhaps one idea that could be different would be to prevent Iran from receiving the billions of dollars that they are going to receive, which will then go into continue a ballistic missile program that will continue regardless of the consequences. And
3: that violation by us of the JCPOA would lead to a, reception, a resumption of the nuclear program. you think it... it
8: Again, I think uh, this, somebody used it, this permissive environment that we have created, uh, which we acknowledge that Iran's going to continue a program of nuclear development, of ballistic missile development, regardless of the consequences, uh, that we've referred these violations to a committee, that we've talked about it, we've sternly uh, reprimanded them, we've wagged our finger, uh, has has done nothing to protect the American people. And this committee, has, I think, done an incredible job of making sure that we understand the facts. But the fact is, we don't have the response and the actions to back it up when Iran has clearly violated this. In fact, we haven't taken any steps necessary to prevent them from growing their ballistic missile program, which they will and has been admitted here.
3: That's I think Mr. that the- Mr. Chairman, my at, time's expired. The action taken by the Security Council Sanctions Committee into clearly identifying this as a violation of a UN resolution has a cost, and it has a benefit to us in enabling us to fortify those partners around the world who work actively with us in preventing the diversion of ballistic missile technology to Iran.
9: Thank you, Chairman uh, Corker and uh, Ranking Member Cardin uh, for holding this hearing, and I'd like to thank uh, our witnesses today. Before I uh, go on at any length, let me just briefly make sure I've understood the point you're making, Mr. Countryman. Um, isn't it correct that the UN expert's report on the ballistic missile launches by Iran is just a few days old? Correct. Uh, and in your testimony, you said that we will continue to call on the Security Council to address this matter, shine a spotlight on destabilizing activities, and increase the cost to Iran of its behavior. Um, I respect that you are actively considering action, but could you just say, will you act?
3: Uh, it is certainly my intent. The bureaucratic process is complicated, in part because we want to get the facts right and we want to get the right target. But it is certainly the mandate of my bureau to push for such action, and I think that uh, we'll continue to do so.
9: Thank you, Mr. Countryman. I, I, I think the focus that all of us as members of the Foreign Relations Committee have on this issue is important because at a time when our country, our constituents are focused on other things. Uh, whether it's uh, ISIS or terrorism or refugees or concerns about our economy, uh, it is the challenge and the job and the responsibility of this committee in partnership with you, in partnership with the administration to insist on a relentless implementation and enforcement of the JCPOA and the continued and aggressive enforcement of the sanctions against other inappropriate illicit activities by Iran, whether it's support for terrorism, human rights violations or their ballistic missile program. Uh, and my willingness uh, to support the JCPOA was rooted in a clear-eyed commitment um, to holding this administration and the next accountable uh, for active enforcement uh, of the JCPOA um, and frankly was rooted in a deep suspicion uh, of Iran's intentions, um, suspicions uh, which I think have been amply confirmed by the IAEA PMD report and by these two ballistic missile tests. So Um, While I I do commend the administration for its active outreach to Congress uh, and for a recent successful high-seas interdiction uh, of a weapons shipment uh, from Iran uh, to support uh, the Houthi rebels, I think we need to continue uh, to work together because if we take our eye off this ball, if we fail in any way to relentlessly enforce uh, what we've got in terms of both U.S. unilateral and multilateral um, abilities to constrain Iran's actions, they will take that as a clear signal um, that we've taken our eye off the ball uh, and that they have carte blanche to continue their um, actions that are antithetical to our values and our interests. So um, let me first, if I could, because we were talking about what authorities you have, both unilaterally and multilaterally. Uh, In January, uh, many members uh, of Congress will call for the swift renewal of the Iran Sanctions Act, uh, which expires at the end of 2016. What is the administration's opinion on the renewal of the Iran Sanctions Act? And do you believe Iran would consider uh, that the United States would be breaking our commitments under the nuclear deal if it's extended? I suspect uh, Ambassador Moll would like to take that.
2: Um, certainly, I'd be happy to uh, Senator Coons. Um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier in my testimony, the, uh, the administration, uh, thanks as a result for work from work uh, with uh, this committee and other parts of the Congress over uh, the past decade and more, uh, have developed uh, an incredibly powerful toolkit uh, for imposing sanctions on uh, behavior, by Iran that threatens our critical interests. Uh, the Iran Sanctions Act has, of course, been a very important part of that. Uh, it is in full force uh, through the end of 2016. Uh, the administration looks forward to working uh, with uh, this committee in considering as we get close to the expiration of that uh, uh, authority, uh, whether it makes sense to continue. But it does, it is in place uh, for the next year. Uh, We we have a good, solid toolkit to use in protecting our interests with Iran.
9: And do you believe Iran uh, credibly would argue that we had somehow violated the JCPOA if we extend it? Given these recent actions, I think we will have more reason than ever to try to constrain their actions.
2: Um, I, it's difficult for me to predict how uh, Iran uh, would uh, respond. Uh, I do underscore that uh, as we exercise our sanctions authority, uh, we do so to protect our interests, not to anticipate or or overcome any anticipated uh, reactions.
9: I think uh, tireless work with our P5 plus one partners as well, uh, as well as continuing uh, to enforce what sanctions authorities we have and extend them, as a key piece of this, uh, I mentioned the interdiction on the high seas of a a ship loaded with weapons uh, being sent in violation uh, of international standards. Um, I think we have to continue and increase our interdiction both of weapons flows and uh, capital flows going to terrorist proxies in the region. Tell me something about the administration's plans uh, to heighten the pace of interdictions in the coming months and uh, whether you're successfully working with our regional partners uh, to prepare for this.
3: Well, of course, interdictions can refer both to uh, critical technology for nuclear ballistic missile programs. It can also refer to the transfer of conventional arms covertly, uh, which Iran is heavily involved in. And unfortunately, a number of other states and actors in the Middle East region are involved in interdiction depends crucially upon intelligence. It depends also upon building a framework of confidence with partners in the region. And I think that we have successfully developed such a partnership with key countries in the region. I would be not only willing but downright proud in a closed session to tell you some of the successes that we've had working with friends in the region. It's been our business for over 20 years to make the Iranian program more expensive, less successful, and we've done that.
9: Well, thank you, Mr. Countryman, and and I would welcome um, that briefing as well. My concern, um, having been briefed in a classified session about a number of successful interdictions, my concern is that uh, other colleagues uh, and the general public aren't as aware of it. Um, A metaphor I've used before is that when a sheriff uh, conducts a successful drug bust, Um, You put all the drugs and guns and money out on a table so that the rest of the community interested in conducting illegal activity recognize that there are costs and there's consequences. And I think we need to be doing some of that at a bigger uh, and more visible way. Let me ask you one last question. Um, Given uh, what I understand to be the actions by uh, China and Russia in blocking the UN Security Council from condemning the ballistic missile tests, are you concerned that we do not have reliable partners in the snapback of sanctions? Uh, when or if there is uh, credible evidence of Iranian cheating um, on the JCPOA.
2: Uh, uh, Senator Coons, we worked very hard, uh, my colleagues uh, who negotiated this deal worked very hard throughout the negotiation to make sure that there would be absolutely no stricture on the ability of the United States uh, to impose, to fully use the sanctions tools at its disposal uh, to respond to Iranian violations of Uh, of UN Security Council resolutions, of challenges to our interests. Uh, In terms of broader international sanctions, uh, we've also structured a process that when there is a credible report to the Joint Commission that administers this deal of a violation, any member uh, of the Joint uh, Commission uh, can bring such a complaint to the Commission. And if a um, limited number of members of the Joint Commission refer that to the Security Council, the presumption is that those sanctions will be snapped back. It will be impossible uh, to, for any member of the Security Council, uh, to veto uh, a recommendation uh, to reimpose sanctions. That's the autopilot, it's the assumption uh, of how the Security Council will handle that. And we believe that that protects our interests and our equities very well.
9: I understand, and I'm hopeful that that mechanism will work as intended. Uh, and I expect that we will work on a, a relentless and bipartisan basis to ensure that our allies understand that we intend to continue to enforce sanctions against Iran's ongoing bad behavior in the region. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. I think it would be helpful if, if something more certain could be given from the administration to us relative to this extension of the Iran sanctions. I do think Senator Coons is right. There will be efforts immediately after the first of the year to extend those. Uh, if there are things you need to share with us in a classified setting, relative to that, that would be fine too. But I, I don't think this vague response does us a lot. And I'm not criticizing you. I know that that's where the administration is right now. But I don't think the vagueness of their thinking is particularly helpful to us. And there may be things you want to share that we're unaware of at present. Sir, I'll be happy to take that request back to my colleagues. Senator Perdue,
10: thank you, and I appreciate you guys and what you're trying to do. This is a, you've got a tough job. Um, I think we are very naive in what we're trying to do uh, and I just look at history. I'm not trying to predict the future, I just look at history um, and to come to that conclusion. I have a couple of questions uh, related to some of the reports coming out. The IAEA just this month released their report that basically says Iran has lied about their PMD efforts. Um, when the foreign minister of Iran, uh, Zarif, said, and I quote, the Islamic Republic of Iran has never sought. Nuclear weapons, nor will it seek them in the future. That's in clear uh, contradiction of the IAEA report, as I read it, of their activity prior to 2003 on into 2009, as late as 2009. And my question is you know, given the missile violations that have already been asked about today, I won't go there, the violating 1929 and, and Resolution 2231. The question is about the uh, 90-day certification that the Secretary of State uh, has uh, given Congress, and I'm gonna quote in here, Iran has not taken any action, including covert activities, that could significantly advance its nuclear weapons program. If they're firing missiles while we're in here before the implementation day in violation of the UN sanctions, or UN resolutions, they're thumbing their nose at us, and my concern is I'm not clear on how the Secretary can make the certification that including covert activities that could significantly advance nuclear weapon program that they've not taken any actions when just last year the Defense Science Board concluded that in the case of Iran, our capabilities detect, quote, undeclared facilities and or covert operations are either inadequate or more often do not exist. I'm just, I'm just not sure how, how, to, how to believe the facts here. Um, the revelation that they were, our own report in a December IEA report basically says that they were doing this all the way through 2000, to 2009, but there was also a report, the U.S. National Intelligence Estimate, this is back in 07, assessed Iran's nuclear weapons program was halted in the fall of 2003. And we now know, they. and, it, and they, all, they went on to say, it has not restarted the program as of mid-2007. Now I know those are old reports, but it goes to my question, and I'd, I'd like the general to first uh, address this, is what confidence do we have, given our own uh, intelligent community's reservation to assure us, both in public and in private, about our own ability to detect true covert activity?
4: Thank you for the question, Senator. My own sense, having worked in and around the intelligence community for decades is that uh, we have very good capabilities. We have a lot of different tools in the toolkit that can be brought to bear. Uh, Sometimes it takes time uh, to ferret out uh, all the details and put all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Uh, But I would commend our colleagues in the intelligence community for eventually getting to that particular point. Uh, uh, I'm also struck, as I read a couple times, three times to be exact, the uh, IAEA report that came out earlier in December on uh, possible military dimensions, uh, just how detailed it was uh, in terms of it laying out uh, the very nature of uh, Iran's program and following up on those issues which had not been resolved uh, at the time it wrote its 2011 report. Uh, It is, uh, I think, very clear, uh, very frank, and very candid about uh, what the Iranians have done, uh, what they have denied doing that we know that they've done, uh, and what we need to uh, pay attention to. The areas that are laid out in the uh, PMD uh, report uh, that the IAEA put out uh, in terms of specific capabilities, in terms of the development of uh, non-nuclear capabilities that would be necessary to weaponize uh, a nuclear weapon, uh, uh, find their way back into the JCPOA as, we, uh, as, as the people who negotiated this structured that agreement in such a way that we would uh, place limits on those very things uh, that the, our intelligence community and that the IAEA have identified as, uh, as, as issues.
10: Second question, um, Ambassador, I'd like you to address this if you will. The fourth item that was in this certification is that this is the um, the suspension of sanctions related to Iran pursuant to the agreement is appropriate and proportionate to the specific and verifiable measures taken by Iran with respect to determining its illicit nuclear program and is vital to the national security interest of the United States. So am I to read this? to say that, that we are already certifying after the first 90 days that we are in support of, I'd like you to clarify this for me in terms of appropriate and proportionate release of sanctions, suspension of sanctions as it says.
2: Um, Sir, yes, uh, there has been uh, some limited sanctions relief uh, up until now. That was negotiated as part of the Joint Program of Action, which uh, uh, was a a mechanism uh, by which to build some good negotiating faith uh, to go uh, forward. In exchange for Iran's uh, uh, cessation of uh, of, uh, certain enrichment activities uh, and other steps to begin to limit uh, the nuclear program that that, that were later codified, uh, in the JCPOA, uh, the United States uh, did agree uh, to allow the unfreezing of a small percentage of uh, Iran's uh, uh, frozen frozen assets.
10: Can you be a little more specific? I mean, can you quantify what that release uh,
2: entails? Yes, it, 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 it amounts to uh, permission for Iran to withdraw uh, seven hundred million dollars of its uh, of its frozen assets in various institutions around the world. Okay.
10: Mr. Secretary, uh, thank you again for for your testimony. I I appreciate your objectivity. Uh, I do take issue with one comment you made earlier that the administration has done everything it can to protect U.S. interests when in this negotiation we didn't even mention and negotiate the four hostages and I don't want to fail to remember that we've got four U.S. citizens being held by this regime and we are not um, even addressing that. Uh, The real question I have for you uh, is, in the United Nations, realistically, with the Security Council veto sitting in front of us. What, what can we expect to be the reaction of the United Nations and what are we really trying to get them to do specifically related to the violations of these two uh, resolutions?
3: Well, thank you, Senator. You know, on the first point, I absolutely share your frustration that we can't solve every problem at once. In negotiations with the Soviet Union on arms control, We were never able to settle human rights questions, questions of foreign intervention in the Warsaw Pact countries, or a host of other issues. And yet those agreements were vital to US national security, and I think, without making any kind of prediction about Iran, laid the groundwork for eventual progress that was made in Eastern Europe and ultimately the Soviet Union. But they were limited. They didn't solve every issue at once. Now, in the case of what we can expect from the Security Council, uh, I take very well Senator Kuhn's point that we should force people to be on the record. Uh, Further, I think that it is important that we continue to support with our own expertise uh, the UN Sanctions Committee, which will have, I hope, a bigger role in identifying and publicizing violations by Iran and violation by companies and merchants outside of Iran. That kind of publicity is what we rely upon when we go make the argument to an exporting country or a transshipment company You've got to do something to stop that shipment of technology. So even if there is not, in the end, a UN Security Council resolution, what the Sanctions Committee has already done is valuable to our counterproliferation efforts.
0: Thank you. Senator Boxer.
11: Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank the panel. Uh, you're working overtime to protect the world from a nuclear-armed Iran. I can think of no higher calling. And I so appreciate what you're doing. And thanks to the Chairman's generosity of spirit, I do have the privilege of introducing Ali Rizayan. Would you stand, please, Ali? Would you stand? We welcome you here today. His brother is Jason. Uh, as we all know, uh, Jason, a Washington Post reporter, uh, is being held in Iran and convicted. And I thank you so much. I, I want to make, uh, I, I want to give a message to the, to the to the government there, if they're listening, um, and I'd like to use this opportunity to echo my friends, uh, and so many of our uh, pointed views about the need to for this government, the Iranian government, to release Jason Rezaian. Uh, December 3rd marks the marked the 500th day of his detention, and Jason's family lives in California, and they yearn for his release and as a senator who stood with those who were willing to take a chance at a new relationship with Iran, and as someone who took huge heat for that, I make this humanitarian request to release Jason and ease the extreme pain of his family. Um, You know, as I listen to everyone, and it's been so interesting, in some ways, you come a little later, you get to hear everybody, and it's, it's very important. What I hear is kind of a narrative developing here that um, is painting an administration that is permissive. And one of my colleagues said naive uh, in terms of Iran. And I personally believe the facts belie this. And I I personally believe you don't have to scream every day and pound the table uh, to be strong. And I know this president didn't scream and pound the table or take a victory lap when he took out Osama bin Laden did it. And um, so I, I just don't see the narrative that way. I totally respect my colleagues' views on it, and and they certainly back it up with a lot of passion and, 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 and policies that they see bolsters that narrative. But I just don't see it. I just read um, Samantha Power's comments, and, and I want to ask you rhetorically if you think this is soft stuff. She says, uh, This, as we know, she's our UN representative. This past October, Iran launched a ballistic missile was obviously capable of delivering a nuclear weapon. Security Council Resolution 1929, still in force, prohibits this kind of launch. After reviewing this incident, the UN own independent panel of experts concluded definitively that it was a violation. Yet instead of an effective, timely response, the Security Council has dithered, has dithered. We intend to keep working. She's speaking for the administration. We intend to keep working with council members to acknowledge and respond appropriately to this serious incident. Then she goes on and she says, we don't see how council members can cast doubt on these violations. So to me to say this administration is naive and you know soft or whatever the word you wanna use, I just don't see that permissiveness. I just don't see it. And then there's a letter that, um, was sent by the President to Senator Coons, in which he says, quote, he signed the letter, President Obama, robust enforcement of sanctions related to Iran's non-nuclear activities will continue to be a critical, a critical element of our policy. I will maintain powerful US sanctions under a host of domestic authorities, countering Iran's support for terrorism it's human rights abuses, missile proliferation, and the illicit sale or transfer of Iranian conventional weapons. I'd ask unanimous consent that I place both these documents in the record. Without objection. Samantha Powers and this letter, because we all know that we have sanctions for, to counter Iran's support for terrorism, human rights abuses, missile proliferation, illicit sale or transfer of Iranian conventional weapons. And those sanctions have not been changed. They still will continue. So I, I, just, um, I just don't like this narrative that's coming out of here because I think it sends a bad message to Iran because I think our message is we are united on this. We're not divided. Maybe we were divided on giving them a chance, but we're not divided at all on standing together to enforce those kind of sanctions. And I feel, uh, anyway, I, I'll move on. Is there anything in this agreement, I would ask Ambassador Mall, that would prevent United States from taking action if the Iranians violate our agreement, the nuclear agreement?
2: No, ma'am, ma'am absolutely nothing.
11: So everything is on the table. And um, I think that's very important. I want, to, I want to switch to questions about the IAEA because I think they're very important in this. Um, I guess I would ask Lieutenant General, In your testimony, you mentioned the extensive coordination and cooperation between the IAEA and the Department of Energy. With regard to the training, how would you describe the quality and capability of IAEA personnel?
4: Uh, Thank you very much for that question, Senator. Uh, I rate the quality, professionalism, seriousness of IAEA personnel, including those who work at the headquarters and the inspectors, to be very high. Now, we support uh, the training of uh, IAEA inspectors. In fact, every single IAE inspector takes a course on nuclear material uh, management uh, at Los Alamos National Lab uh, in New Mexico. Uh, other members, other inspectors, and other members of the staff receive what you might call continuing professional education or graduate level education on monitoring plutonium, uh, other aspects of the fuel cycle, at other of our uh, national uh, laboratories here in the United States. Uh, We also provide, uh, at the request of the IAEA, a number of people to support their uh, safeguard staff. There's about 800 people in the safeguard staff. Uh, at uh, IAEA. Roughly 10% of those, 80, uh, are American citizens, uh, many of whom have come through our national lab structures uh, across the United States or have worked in DOE or NNSA. Uh, we also provide about 15 uh, uh, cost, what we call cost-free ex- experts to serve on the staff over there on sh- and on short term consultancies. Um, the other thing that we do besides training, if I might, Uh, take just a little more time on this is our national laboratories are also developing a lot of the processes and the technologies which are part of the um, process for um, them carrying out their inspections and continuous monitoring. I visited Lawrence Livermore Laboratory just uh, last week and saw some of the work that they're doing there, other of our laboratories and developing the seals, the cameras. Uh, the monitors that uh, the IAEA uses, uh, uh, will use in Iran, but also uses in all the other countries that uh, are, uh, have agreed to uh, uh, safeguards uh, agreements or the additional protocol with the IAEA. So it's a very professional organization. It ought to be. We've been working very closely with them for since the late 1950s.
11: Okay, I will close with this. Thank you. I think the IAEA is so critical to, for all of us, whether we supported the agreement or not. And I would just urge you, if you see anything that you feel is is changing your view of the IAEA, we need to know because they're key to this whole agreement. Thank you very much for your generosity, Mr.
0: Chairman. If I could, I I do want to say that this permissiveness issue is one that has been felt strongly on both sides of the aisle, and there was, as I understand it, a a strong letter that went from a large group of Democrats yesterday to the administration. I think the concern is that. We've known of the violation. Uh, we've had multiple, I think Ben and I met directly with the UN Security Council and Samantha Power. And We know that Russia and China are going to block, and I think people see uh, this breakneck uh, thing happening where likely at the end of January all the sanctions are going to be relieved, uh, and, and yet potentially no pushback on this issue. So just for what it's worth, Mr. Chairman, I, it,
11: yeah. I'd like to engage in it since you okay. answered my point. I never said it was partisan. Yeah, no, I'm not. I said that there is some, you know, a narrative being written, yeah, both sides of the aisle. You look at who voted against this nuclear agreement, both sides of the aisle. There's a disagreement and it isn't partisan. I didn't mean to suggest it and I never said it. I just frankly disagree with it. You can write a hundred letters a hundred ways to Sunday. Yeah. I just read Samantha Powers. I just read the president of the United States. So you can create any scenario, not that it hurts, it probably emboldens our people to do even more, but the point is, I just don't agree with it, and we could argue it all day. Mr. Chairman,
10: I'm sorry, but we, uh, for uh, the record, we interject never really got to vote on this agreement.
1: If I just may interject myself for one moment here, and that is, uh, there is, I think, unanimous support in the United States Senate for zero tolerance for violations by Iran. I think that is, there's 100% support to work as hard as we can to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power. We're committed to that. And I think there is pr- uh, pride that the engagement of Congress has given us a better opportunity to achieve those objectives. I think that's where we are together, and uh, I, I know that we can continue to work together. Yeah.
0: Senator Flight.
12: Thank you, and thank you for the testimony. And I apologize if I'm plowing old ground uh, here. But with regard to and let me just say i i came out uh uh, against the agreement but i feel it was a close call it was uh difficult you never want to be on the other side of uh, almost all of your allies here Uh, but my my concern in the end and what uh tipped the balance for me is the concern that our our uh, ability or our desire for iran to stick to the nuclear side of the agreement might prevent us from challenging Iran or punishing Iran on their non-nuclear behavior. And the ballistic you know, weapons thing is kind of fuzzy. It's only used for nuclear payroll, we're told, but it's kind of a non-nuclear side or not part of the JPOA agreement. But I am concerned that uh, it seems as if uh, we're just kind of accepting, ah, oh, the Security Council isn't gonna act on this. Russia, China will veto. So, that's it. What other remedies do we have outside of that? I can understand you can publish and try to uh, work with others who might be participating or supplying Iran or 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 helping them uh, with this program. But what else? What other remedy do we have outside of the Security Council for this breach, Mr. Countryman?
3: Well, a couple of points. One, this should not be taken in is in any way excusing an Iranian violation, but in fact, the missile launched on October 10th was a medium-range ballistic missile, not an ICBM. We do have, by the way, a general concern about the proliferation of medium-range ballistic missiles by a number of countries in the Middle East. That's making the region more dangerous, but of course our number one concern and our number one target for action is the Iranian program. Now, the authorities that we have we have used aggressively and creatively, and we will continue to do so. But they are are the authorities that Congress has given and that the president has established previous presidents under executive order in order to designate specific Iranian entities and entities outside of Iran to impose a genuine economic cost upon the entity and upon the program of development of ballistic missile technologies. When those sanctions and designations touch companies outside of Iran, it is a matter of significant commercial harm to those companies and those countries that allow countries to participate in that kind of behavior. That's what we have the authority to do, and that's what we do very aggressively. On the diplomatic side, I think Ambassador Power has already described what we can do within the United Nations. We of course reach well beyond the United Nations. Just last Friday I was in Brussels with meetings for a meeting with all 28 of my counterparts from European Union states where I emphasized again the necessity to stand strong on preventing the shipment of technology in ballistic missiles to Iran. So, those are the authorities we have, and uh, I sincerely welcome ideas on how to use them more effectively.
12: Ambassador Moll, um my concern is that Iran has already said the government has stated uh, over and over that it will consider any impl- or any implementation or or uh, going back to the sanctions that we have on the books um, for any behavior of Iran, a violation of the agreement. Um, If Iran uh, were to uh, take action outside of the nuclear agreement that we thought to be egregious enough to justify implementing sanctions, in particular here, let's face it, the ones that really that we can do on a unilateral basis that matter are the capital market sanctions or central bank sanctions. Will we hesitate to use that lever if we need to? Uh, Because that's been the difference. We've said, yes, we will. The administration has, and the Iranians are saying, if you do, that violates uh, the JPOA, and we are out of our obligations. What's your sense of our willingness to use those levers that we have?
2: Uh, Thank you, Senator. Uh, The administration has been quite clear, uh, both publicly and throughout the entire negotiating process, that this deal is exclusively about the nuclear question. And we will not hesitate to use other authorities to address other threats to our interests outside of that nuclear deal.
12: Even if it's the same sanctions that we imposed uh, on the nuclear side, in particular, the sanctions on their central bank.
2: Yes, we have a wealth of authorities available uh, to confront um, all of these uh, uh, threats to our interests, whether it's on human rights, uh, the missile launches that we talked about, Iran's regional destabilization activities, its support for terrorism. Uh, we have a ro- wide variety of, of sanctions that target any number of aspects of, uh, of, of Iran.
12: As I mentioned, I, I was prepared to vote against the agreement had we uh, got to the vote. Uh, having said that, uh, this is going forward. I, I hope it works. I hope that this committee and the Congress uh, ensures that it does work. Um, that it's important, I think, that, uh, that we not countenance, even from the beginning, uh, violations of the agreement on the Iranian side. If we do, then it's all gone. It's all for naught. So thank you, Mr. Chairman.
13: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Secretary Countryman, last spring this committee held a hearing on the new U.S.-China civil nuclear cooperation agreement. During that hearing, we discussed very credible allegations about China's inability or, as I suggested, unwillingness to enforce its commitments to prevent bad actors like Carl Lee from selling ballistic missile technology to Iran, North Korea, and other countries of concern. As has been discussed here today, Iran has conducted two ballistic missile tests in the past few weeks in violation of UN Security Council Resolution 1929. Which countries do you believe are providing ballistic missile technologies to Iran, Mr. Secretary?
3: My assessment is the same as it was this spring, that the primary source of advanced missile Uh, Advanced Technology for Iran's Ballistic Missile Program are companies in China. Uh, I believe the Chinese government has stepped up its efforts to enforce its own laws and UN sanctions. However, I cannot say that they have reached a satisfactory point of enforcement.
13: And so, again, that continues to be my very serious concern. It was my concern about the approval of the China Civil nuclear agreement without conditions attached to it, now, I did not have the support on this committee or in the Senate to attach those conditions, but those conditions would have imposed upon China a requirement to put in place the safeguards against Kyle Lee and others transferring ballistic missiles into Iran and into North Korea and to other countries. I mean, we essentially have the equivalent of uh, the nuclear materials, which I think are now under very close safeguards being the bullets, but the missiles are the guns. And we're in a gun control discussion here today, ballistic missiles that can deliver those nuclear bullets to uh, other uh, countries in the world. And China is the um, gun manufacturer. And and so from my perspective, we missed a great opportunity here uh, to condition that agreement. I think we should have. Uh, because this whole discussion on ballistic missiles now goes back to that China agreement since they are, from the administration's perspective, the most likely source of the ballistic missile technology. Uh, And we had a lot of leverage at that point. I argued that we should condition it at that time, but uh, again, I think it was a great historic missed opportunity um, to draw a line on nuclear proliferation issues, uh, to create the linkages uh, so that we could have in one year put tough safeguards on the bullet program, the nuclear uh, materials program, and on the gun program, the ballistic missile delivery. That was China though, not Iran. Uh, They'll receive whatever can come through clandestinely. And as long as Kyle Lee and people like that are able to move around China with impunity, uh, I think we're going to continue to have a very serious problem. Uh, And we might as well just have the hearing on that subject, you know, uh, because that's the ballistic missile discussion in Iran. Uh, And it's going to be other countries like China who believe that notwithstanding their public support for gun control, uh, that they find their own way around a relatively poorly enforced restriction uh, because we don't step up and use our leverage when the historic opportunity arrives. And that was the China um, Civilian Nuclear Agreement. If anything was directly related to Iran and its nuclear program, it was what China was looking for at that point to have that discussion, didn't happen. So, um, so uh, going forward, having lost that opportunity, what else do we have as a tool uh, to uh, let China know how serious we are about this and how we don't intend on countenancing a circumvention of an international agreement that the entire world at least ostensibly says that they believe uh, is very important to long-term global stability.
3: Well, briefly, I will be in Beijing again uh, next month. I don't wish to have whatever I say there dismissed as finger wagging because I think it'll be a pretty strong message. But uh, I also uh, can't predict and can't forecast at this moment what additional actions we will take against uh, Chinese entities that are complicit in providing ballistic missile technology. I'll only say. As we said earlier, that under active consideration right now are additional effective measures in response to the October 10th test.
5: I appreciate
13: that. I think it's inadequate. I don't think it's you know going to actually have the kind of weight uh, force uh, behind it that uh, rejection of or conditioning of the China civilian nuclear agreement would have. But again, it just continues to raise the whole question of China, of, of, of nuclear 123 agreements, uh, the very high hypocrisy coefficient that it then sends out uh, as a message to the rest of the world. And, and I would hope that, Mr. Chairman, next year that we uh, take up once again you know, the 123 agreement of climate that we've created around the world where we are suppliers ourselves. Uh, and unfortunately turn a blind eye too often to uh, other gun suppliers uh, who are out there uh, who do not believe that there is going to be a sufficiently um, uh, well-enforced international response when it's clear that there are violations which are taking place. And I don't think there's any question that Carl Lee is the gun dealer, the ballistic missile dealer, one of them anyway, but at the top of the list and that there still is not sufficient uh, Chinese response to it. And I don't think there's sufficient response from our own country's perspective on it. Uh, I just think we have to take a harder line on it, uh, and there's really no point uh, in trying to convince people that Iran is sincere uh, if they're engaging in an ongoing clandestine ballistic missile um, program with supplies coming in from China. You know That just leaves the very clear impression that we're just in a temporary uh, period of abeyance uh, before uh, they attach the bullets to the top of these ballistic missiles. Okay, And that's really a cynical approach which they're taking, the Chinese are taking, and I just think that we had a, an opportunity, but I think we have to focus upon this next year. I think we need those hearings so that we come back to this China question once again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Well, thank you and thanks for your continued uh, vigilance there. I know that you and I shared concerns. I think we both realized uh, where the issue stood in the United States Senate as a whole. But uh, uh, again, I thank you for your continued efforts in that regard. Senator Risch.
3: Thank you very much. Um, I'm not going to belabor this. You guys know where I am on this. Just so you know, the the comments by Senator Boxer uh, are not shared equally by members of this committee. Uh, You have apologists here, the administration has apologists here, I get that. This is a joke and has been for uh, months and years now. I'm going to answer her rhetorical question. She read Samantha Power's letter and she read the president's letter and she said, do you think this is soft stuff? Yes, I think this is soft stuff.